Welcome to the Dirty Lie Podcast. This is your host, Des. This is a reminder that this week's episode is a part two of last week's episode. This week, we're going to go straight in to the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, and then we're going to go into the overthrow of Iran by Kermit Roosevelt Jr. and Alan Dulles. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would advise you listen to that before you listen to this. So, enjoy. Thank you, as always, for rocking with us. And please remember to subscribe to our channel. You know, the craziest thing about this thing is not just that an American president is saying, go and kill the Mumba because they think he has communist leanings. Mm. Like, not that he's a bad person, mm-hmm. not that he has proven communist leanings. They suspect he might lean towards the communists so we should go and kill him yeah now you know we've spoken about this the first ever episode we did if no one remembers or if you can't if you haven't listened you should listen to our first episode but i remember us talking about joe from paris the chemist coming with a poison toothpaste like just this i don't know if you say comedic but just this very strange way in which america was literally plotting to kill patrice lumumba mm-hmm. um the guy who met with Joe from Paris, the guy who was the head of the CIA in Congo, was a guy called Larry. Can you remember? Joe and Larry. Yeah. Larry Delvin, right? Now, do you know what Larry Delvin, do you know what his job was after he left the CIA? He, he owned an ice cream store. Okay, give me a field and I'll try and narrow it down. I just want to say, he went back to Congo. So, I don't know... Who was the farmer? Mm-mm. Insurance? Nope. Media agency? <laughs> he started a podcast. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? No. No. Larry became the business agent of Maurice Templesman, the diamond, cobalt, and uranium broker. Right. He went back to Congo after having a hand in Patrice Lumumba's death to... Oh. Yeah, to, to get Congolese diamonds. Because that was part one, killing the um, you know leader Kill against the, the opposition. Yeah. Yeah. And then you mine the resources. Kill the leader, fund Mobutu's coups. He personally gave Mobutu the thousands of dollars to fund his coup. Mm-hmm. Kill the leader, fund the coups, get the diamonds. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that is like, oh, conspiracy. Like, it's just actual factual facts. Like, it's mm-hmm. crazy. It's just crazy to know that this is actually real. Like, this yeah. is a real thing. These are real people who go to school and are friends with the owners of mines in Africa. And then 20 years later, are killing the freedom fighter who wants to, who wants to take some of my friend's profits. You know, Alan used to play tennis with these people before he, he joined the CIA. He would, go to all these clubs, all these private clubs, you know, play tennis with the big CEOs. He was building his contact Big financiers, yes. And apparently what he would do is he would play them doubles, right? And play them like, play really, really hard. Like, like he'll keep the game tight until the end Mm -hmm. and let the guy beat him. Mm. So the guy would feel like it's a hard one, like, is it hard? Yeah, it's like a hard, hard was he a really good player? Yeah, he was a really good player. But apparently, like, just every single thing about him was just, like, calculated to that degree mm. of, like, I'm going to let this guy beat me in the very end or something. Mm. Like, you know, like, it, it's, 
this is the type of person that do you know how good you have to be at a sport to pretend to lose and control it to, to the point to where that bro when I wrote that and it's, it's like it's tennis like that's that's hard right mm-hmm. I don't know like but you know what so Eisenhower so Eisenhower says kill Lumumba right mm-hmm. the Belgians are super happy about this because they have lost access to they've lost access to the Cong- Congo's mines and diamonds mm. and you know their natural resources um, and they want it back right mm. like I think it's hard for us to think now that uh, back then they didn't think that independence was like a permanency mm. Like we've been dependent now for like sixty years or whatever, but yeah. they, they imagined that it would be something that'll fail, right? They mm. just did not imagine that they would not have the control that they had had for hundreds of years. Prior, true, right? true. Like they just thought this is going to be a fun experiment. We're going to make sure it fails. We have the guns. We have the money. We've already sowed so much seeds of conflict in this country. Like it can't work. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Anyways, Devlin. So this institution that Allen is a part of is a particular administration, right? And JFK is running for president. He's talking about how he likes Lumumba. He's talking about how he likes that, you know. They're already planning his death somewhere in the background. They are. Oh my god. Oh my god, did I tell you this? What? That they are they were also plotting JFK's death. Well um, no, I just guessed. Oh yeah. No. But that's if a totally different if you're trying to take out the rebel leader in other countries, you also have to look out for the one in your country. Mm. When JFK wins his election, they're like, okay, this guy is going to come in and he's going to have a very different stance on Congo. So let us, let's kill Lumumba before JFK gets in because he's going to have a different, he has a different attitude. I won't be able to sanction anything. Yeah. And he's not going to give us the go ahead to kill Lumumba. Mm -hmm. Do you know that after the CIA got Lumumba killed, they didn't even inform JFK for a month. He didn't know. Mm. He did not know his own CIA, along with the Belgians, another foreign power, had killed his ally. Had killed somebody who was his ally for one month. And when JFK finally finds out, it's not them that tell him. It's the UN. It's someone from the UN who informs him that Lumumba has been killed. Mm. He had no idea. And if you if you Google JFK finds out Lumumba is dead, you see the picture is a very famous picture. Like he was actually distressed. Hmm, interesting. You, you, you know the picture. Have you seen the picture? It's oh my god, he's crying on the phone. Yeah. Like he's he's literally Yeah, he's in he's distraught. He's actually distraught. So and imagine like the president that came before him is, is a guy that's saying it's crazy that you you have one person who's literally distraught and you have somebody else that says Africans just came down from trees. Mm-hmm. Those monkeys just came down from trees like, what, 50 odd years ago and now they want to rule themselves. Can you imagine? Like, like are- difference in ideology based on age and exposure and education, but also like politics. Yes. Yeah. And the difference that that makes is literal life or death for us. 
it's not even their business. I don't know. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's like the attitude of a few men sitting in a room somewhere in Virginia or in DC mm. or in New York. Their attitudes and their personal profits or whatever has life and death implications for us Africans in Africa. That's a bit insane. That's wild. It's actually wild. It is, right? So I, I don't know if I don't actually want to talk about Lumumba's actual death because it is gruesome you know the how he was you guys they used they were tracking this guy with a plane you think Mobutu just found Lumumba by himself Mm. the Belgians were helping as if can you imagine that a plane they were scouting him out with a plane Mm. and you know the funny part is when Mobutu took over he planned, he announced that he was going to be, um, just, it was the word. He's just going to put the country in a place where the technicians, so he's referring to policymakers and mm-hmm. you know, technocrats. Yeah, he said those guys can rule the country. I mean, I'm just here trying to facilitate and make sure everything is peaceful and orderly. This man ruled the country for what? Does it 30 years? Yeah, yeah like something insane like that. So I know a lot of people say, well, they wish we could go back to the days of Abacha, but I'm begging you, stop saying that thing. Because <laughs> dictators dictate. Bro. And they dictate when they leave. And it's never for a short time. And it's not... It's so hard to like conceptualize the level of greed and wickedness and power that... Lumumba is running for his life with his wife and two-year-old child in mm. the car. Mm. And there's a Belgian plane flying above. So, like your mind would not even go there. I, I don't know. I don't know. As if maybe his mind would have gone there. He was a highly intelligent, like, experienced. And he knew the type of devil he was playing with. But like... Mm. I'm not going to talk about this. his actual death, right? Mm. It's too much. We don't have to get into it. We don't have to get into it. I think we we vaguely got into it before. We don't have to get into it. But you guys, the more I learn, because obviously we spoke about this in our first episode and I knew about some of the things that went on, but like I've read more and I now I know more. So I think that's something that's fun in this podcast is that we learn together. It's like even when we did the the heists and, you know, you taught me, more about Uday and Kusei Hussein. And mm-hmm. those are people we've spoken about on this podcast, which is something that's really fun about learning is knowing that it's like a bottomless pit of information. Like there's always going to be something new to learn. No matter how much you know a topic, you don't know everything on the topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I'm being corny now, but it's actually, it's like, it's like nice to like, you know, go back to something that you kind of know and discover parts that you didn't know. 100%. Like a freaking Belgian plane. <laughs> tracking Mobutu I said Mobutu a Belgian plane tracking Lumumba Devlin I'm not surprised his name like rhymes with devil it's crazy he knew three days before they were taking Lumumba away like he knew and he didn't tell he literally just didn't tell America because he was just like bro JFK is coming in like it's premeditated murder it's premeditated but also unsanctioned murder it's done in bad faith it's uh it's insane it's insane i'm going to read 
a passage from Patrice Lumumba's final letter to his wife. Mm. And he goes, Neither brutality, nor cruelty, nor torture will ever bring me to ask for mercy, for I prefer to die with my head unbowed. History will one day have its say, but it will not be the history that is taught in Brussels, Paris, Washington, or in the United Nations. Africa will write its own history, and to the north and south of the Sahara, it will be a glorious and dignified history. That's beautiful. And that's us. That is. (laughs) Yes. Mm. I'm so happy to be able to... Be a part of that legacy. Yes. And... If anyone doesn't know about Lumumba, his teachings, his writing, not his teachings, but like his philosophy and who he was. If I'm doing a little bit to spread the gospel of Patrice Lumumba, then I'm I'm proud that, you know, I'm so happy to be part of the legacy. Uh, you know, the, the crazy thing is that afterwards, the guys who hailed Lumumba were like, my bad. No, they didn't say sorry. They were just like, first of all, Alan said... I think we may have overestimated the Soviet's interest in Congo. Mm. And Devlin, when he was, you know, they had this, in, I think 1975, the committee where the, where the Senate committee, where they look into the CIA's attempted assassinations or rules and assassinations of foreign na- leaders. Mm. Devlin had to testify uh, about Lumumba. Obviously, America absolved themselves of responsibility in the end, but okay, sure. Because <laughs> they didn't actually shoot him. Yeah. Okay. When he was testifying, he said, I didn't regard Lumumba as a kind of person who was going to bring about World War Three. Mm. It's called the Church Committee. That was his expression of remorse. Right? Yeah. Like, mm, okay, like, he wasn't really down with the Soviets like that, but we killed him anyways mm. when we ensured he died I don't get it <laughs> I don't get it I mean I can see how it would make sense to them you can see how it would make sense to them the idea of like listen the Soviets are biggest enemies right now and we have to take out anyone that everyone shows a hint of interest cause if, you, if you're a country like America that sees the world through imperialism mm. then that makes perfect sense and the Soviets are kind of an empire in that sense as well. The Soviet Union at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fitting. And the thing about it is that, like, even the Soviet relationship with Africa was also quite, like... I think there's a country they sent snowplows to. Sent snowplows to Africa. What, Afri- what African country would need snowplows? But yes, I see some bits of it. Do you think they did the snowplow, really? There's that much snow? Maybe just. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after um, after they send Patrice Lumumba to his death and the plane landed in Katanga, there was a CIA officer there waiting to radio Devlin and he messaged, he cabled Devlin in Leopold saying, thanks for Patrice. Mm. If we had known he was coming, we would have baked a snake. A snake. Mm-hmm. Do you say that because it rhymes with cake and it's just an unpleasant thing? I guess. That's interesting. I guess. <laughs> right wing humor. Haha. <laughs> 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 
Three days after Patrice was killed, JFK was inaugurated. Mm, mm, mm. Like they really were like. Mm. There's no way. I'm sure there are laws against presidents sanctioning ops like that mere days before the election. Bro, no, not the election. He had won. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, is for the inauguration. Like, you're on your way. Imagine, like, yeah. So it's not my yeah. way out. Let me try and kill them, this African yeah. leader. Yeah. What? Eesh. Now, that's like how ins- that must be like that kind of sheds light on how inconsequential African countries were to the to West. Me, yeah. Isn't it? confuse the countries for each other just like moving a chess piece before you have to before you have to get lunch or something i remember when i was in school in england and we were an econ class and somebody's like my classmates i'm in school in england and so i think basically most of my class most of my class is english and of us foreign students, it's like me from Nigeria, somebody from Singapore, and somebody from India. Anyways, well, basically, the dynamic is like, it's very clear that all the internationals in school, they are ex-colonial subjects, mm-hmm. right? And we all have our own histories with Britain in a very different way, right? But they were talking about something. I was talking about Americans being bad at geography. Like, it was just like some type of joke or like, you know how when British people are trying to sound stupid, they fake an American accent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, yeah, but I was like, I figure that Britons are probably like that. There are probably quite a few British people who are bad at geography. Um, But I'm not thinking like my classmates, right? Because I'm in the number one IB school in England. So these are like super intelligent kids. Mm. I'm thinking on average, you know, these people have 10 A's and A stars at GCSEs and stuff like that. I'm just thinking on average, like they would know just, I don't know. So somebody says to me like, well, obviously I don't know where Nigeria is on a map, but I know the important countries. (laughs) And I'm just thinking, it's the most populous. I'm not from like, which... I even still know where it is on the map, but like, I'm not from St. Kitts and Nevis. I'm not from Tigistan. I'm not from, I'm not from Swaziland. I'm not from the stands, all those countries. <laughs> I'm, I'm from Nigeria, the most populous black country. But also like the guy also then, they, it goes on and we find out they can't pick up India on a map. <laughs> India is huge. Mm. Like how, how do you not, how can't you point out where India is? In a billion people. Massive country. It's India. <laughs> it, so, yeah. Like what? one-seventh of the world. <laughs> so, yeah. We are not important, except uh, we're not important to them. Yeah. And it's not something that dis- disturbs me, to be honest. I, it, it's just something that when you see how our history is playing out and our our current state of affairs, it is highly distressing. Um because you can just you can just draw a direct thread. People try and stop the history of imperialism in Africa, stop it at the moment you become independent. And it's so jarringly like untrue. Mm. I don't know if Anyways, I feel like we're, we're getting, we're getting, I'm getting carried away here. Let us go to Iran because they did a madness in Iran. And I just want to say, like, I cannot believe after this story I'm about to tell, I cannot believe America has the 
guts to put sanction on Iran. <laughs> no one can believe that. People talk about it all the time. Like, why is this still here? It's like the same thing with Cuba. But there's still sanctions on Cuba. I can't believe they have the guts yeah. to put sanctions on Iran after what they did to the Iranian people. <laughs> it's a bit mad. It's a bit mad. You know, I thought I was going to become... Everybody always says this thing, like, not everyone, but a lot of people, when you're in school, they're always like... When you grow up, you're gonna become Republican. You know, you're gonna you're gonna go to the right. You're gonna become more conservative. And the more I grow up, the more I read. I'm like, bro, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm growing up into. I was never like you're making me grow up into an adult radical. <laughs> like, how can you read these things and have peace? <laughs> you know, I think Nigeria is the opposite when compared to a lot of other countries. Education wise, like <clears throat> a lot of kids are radicals when they're in university. And after like 20 years of life, they kind of grow out of it. Mm. In Nigeria, a lot of kids, normal, they're happy, go lucky in university. And then they become radicals in their early 20s and kind of lingers all through their 40s and 50s sometimes. Bro. Man, okay, let me, let's go to Iran. You guys, I took notes on Iran, but I think I'm going to like just give you guys a quick summary because this is long. We're going to, we're, we're going to do this episode as a two-parter. Mm. I think that's, but then we'll, we'll do it as a two-parter, then we'll do a bonus. I have a, I have a delicious bonus for you. I'll give you guys some background. Iran was a British colony. Um, they too, like us, a former British colony that had oil. Uh, the oil in Iran was owned, owned, quote unquote, by British Petroleum, BP. So the profits from Iranian oil were going straight to Britain. Now, they voted in the democratically elected president. Mohammed Mossadegh was the Iranian president. He was formerly a member of their parliament and he was voted in in 1952 and he was overthrown in a 1953 coup Mm. which was orchestrated planned and funded by the cia with some help from mi6 it was led by a guy called kermit roosevelt jr teddy roosevelt's grandson Mm. Who had been classmates with Alan Dulles' daughters. <laughs> Bro. Bro. Like childhood classmates. <laughs> he called the guy Kimmy. Abib Kelly. Abib, what, no, he called him Kim. Kermit. This is his little, this is like his little son. Son, come make me proud. Overthrow the government in Iran. <laughs> yeah. It's a family thing. It's, what's And so Mossadegh had Essentially, the, the main reason why America was doing this is oil, mm. which they say so themselves. Mossadegh had nationalized the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, which is now known as BP, as I said. But he had nationalized it and they were like, how? They were like, this is going to give ideas to the rest. The rest? Us. Angola, Nigeria, you know, the rest are us. They're like, Iran is going to make them think they can own their own oil. <laughs> so we must take a stand here. <laughs> we must show them it's not done. It's mm-hmm. not done. Mm-hmm. How can you say you own your... How can you, <laughs> how can you say you own the crude oil in your land? It's not, it's not right. It's not right. 
Meanwhile, you guys, this is a very aside. This is an aside, but this is a juicy aside that I just learned this week because I was I was researching this and I was reading WikiLeaks. I told you I can connect this guy to anybody. Ernest mm. Shoneko, while president of Nigeria, was an executive at Shell. There are wires where Shell is boasting to the CIA, the U.S. Embassy. Mm. That they have so many staff in Nigerian government, and the CIA is asking Shell for information. Mm. Shell is like, we know more about these guys than you. Of course, Shell has an intelligence or had an intelligence unit. <laughs> they have their own mini CIA. Bro, what? I feel like you guys. I, I don't know if it's just me, but do you guys ever listen to things that Tim Turner tell you? And you're like, no way. Like that can't be true. I think so. Right, so we get those DMs, and I'm like, okay, yeah, they're like, there's no way this happened. There's no, how can a president be <laughs> somebody's boy, boy, a shell? So first, Kim, Kimmy, Lil Kim goes to Iran as Alan's agent, um, originally to try and secure a deal with the Shah who was in power before. Mm. So first he goes as a commercial agent for Alan's clients. When that doesn't work, he stays on as a CIA agent to overthrow the government. Wow. Wow. And you know, after jumping here, but Alan Dulles was a lawyer and his clients were like Standard Oil in America, mm. Mobile, all these places. Mm-hmm. Before the coup, they had zero percent interest in Iranian oil. Mm. They had zero, right? Mm. After the coup, what percent do you think Alan was able to give his buddies in California and New York? 60%. No, that's it. Yeah. yeah. 20. 40 now. 40. 40. 40 is a 40%. That's, that's it. That's what? Um, 40%. That's past in some bad schools. <laughs> no, 40%. From zero to 40. Saying that American oil had no 0% interest to 40% interest. Anyway, yeah. He's wrestling this 40 with with a... Can he... He's wrestling... This, this is payment for helping MI6. Because mm-hmm. MI6 want their, 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 their money back. Yeah. It's not even their money. They just want the money back. It's Iranian money. So, let's talk about this overthrow. By the way, like, the reason why I'm saying Alan Dulles, like, toppled Iran is because... Even Eisenhower was like, nah, I don't want to do this. Eisenhower was like, I don't feel like toppling another country right now. He couldn't, he, he felt like, well, what one of, one source puts it as his Midwestern sense of decency made him recoil from backing Britain's colonial siege of Iran. So maybe it's easier for him if, if you're a bit darker skin. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, when Alan Dulles, with his brother, John Foster Dulles, who at that time was Secretary of State, came to Eisenhower with this plan of let's topple Iran, let's topple Iran. Eisenhower was like, why don't we just give Mossadegh a hundred million dollar loan to help him like, be able to hold off Britain's colonial siege? Eisenhower, like, why are we why are we saying, yeah, like, Topple, topple, let's just topple. Like, why don't we, you know? But Alan didn't give up. 
when he realized that Eisenhower was not going to back the siege, he started feeding the president and the National Security Council cold war like telling them that the soviets were basically about to take over iran he said that iran was being confronted with a maturing revolutionary setup he warned that if iran fell into communist hands 60 percent of the free world's oil would be controlled by moscow oil and gasoline would have to be rationed at home and U.S. military operations would have to be curtailed. He was like, we are in danger. <laughs> we are in bro, danger. <laughs> Watch yourself. <laughs> Do you know the type of story? This was crazy, bro. Do you know how he, he scaremongering these people into mm-hmm. be like, we would, ha- we would have to ration oil <laughs> at home. Kids will have to walk 10 miles to go to school. <laughs> America would not be able to... The Navy would not be able to send ships out to the ocean. We will have no gas. Our people will suffer. Imagine. And then after all of this, like... After all of this, what happened? Th- the truth is that they knew... Like, Alan knew that Mossadegh was not a communist. He was described as a favorite nationalist. Mm. In one assessment... The British, a British foreign official said that he was another Gandhi, not a Mao. In fact, Iran's Communist Party viewed Mossadegh as a liberal bourgeois with dangerous illusions about America. Hmm. Even leadership, Soviet leadership in Moscow did not want to involve themselves with Mossadegh or Iran. This is not even like in Africa where they're trying to even reach out or something they're literally just like no I'm not trying to get mixed up with that soup mm. so there's literally no like logical reason to believe that Alan's fears are based in anything other than profit mm. yeah but regardless of all these facts that I've I've you know mm-hmm. <laughs> spoken about the Dulles brothers were set on Iran mm. and Iranian oil and they managed to convince Eisenhower to go ahead with this plan to topple Iran's democratically elected government. Mm-hmm. And they drew up the plan and they brought the plan. I was like, I have a plan for my sweet boy, Kim, over here. Mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt's grandson. He went to Harvard. He's su- sweet, mild-natured. They're highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. He will head up this operation. Mm-hmm. And head it up, he did. Now, um... I'm going to tell you what the CIA did and what Kermit did. Kermit Jr. I think the name Kermit is really, I don't know, it's such a weird name to me. So, because of the Muppets. Hmm? Because of the Muppets? Yeah, because of the Muppets. Hmm. I just think about Muppets, Muppet life. For the past two years, before Alan had shared this plan, with the president, Kermit was already in Iran. He had been, can you imagine this? Before the president knew, like before the president were like, okay, I'll give you permission to topple the government. They had been planning this for two years. Yeah. Wow. This is even before the president had won election. Mm. They're already planning. Building their pitch deck. Bro. He had been, bar- they were literally burying crates of guns and cash in the desert to distribute to tribal warriors Mm. they thought oh maybe the soviets are going to come here and so that was the backing they used for that 
They now turned this clandestine network of weaponry and cash that they had stashed over the last two years against Iran's elected government. Mm. They were hiring bands of mercenaries. They were paying military leaders to betray Iran. In fact, US and British intelligence operatives who were running this operation were prepared to go to any length to accomplish the task of toppling Iran's, again, democratically elected government. Key officials in the military and government who remained loyal to Mossadegh were kidnapped and murdered such as General Mahmoud Ashfartus, the officer in charge of purging the armed forces of traitorous elements. Mm -hmm. The general's mangled corpse was found dumped on a roadside outside Tehran as a message to all officials who chose to stand by the prime minister. Other prominent loyalists would have their throats slit and their bodies buried far away in the Alborz mountains. Mm Again, you guys, I need to let you guys know that a New York kid called Kim Jr., who went to Harvard, Mm -hmm. took his boys to Iran and started slitting the throats of their officials and their military. Yeah, he knew the work they were getting ready to. No, I mean, also, this was a guy with like no military experience. In fact, I think he was maybe one of two direct directors eventually that were like just civilians yeah no he didn't have military experience alan yeah no he didn't have he didn't have military experience yeah, that's what i'm saying so he, to be able to run this kind of but he was a spy i mean he was an oss before he was a spy before yeah but, but still yeah. like it's not military yeah, you're right like it was like admin work you know it's like but he was on the field, you know. He was in the field. Yeah. Okay. Let me see. Let me give you an Alan anecdote to know the type of sicko he is. Mm. I mean, I think I've already said on this podcast that people think he was a manipulative psychopath, like mm. like an actual like diagnosed like he lacked empathy as a human being. Mm. But uh, let me read. Let me tell you what Alan was doing when he was eight years old. So you understand. When he was seven years old and he was staying with his grandpa. His grandfather was Secretary of State and he was in Washington and he would have all these important people come over for dinner. This is when he's seven, right? Mm -hmm. After every dinner, Alan would go upstairs, sit in his bedroom and write reports of what he had heard, summarizing the opinions of the statesmen whose company he had just left and seeking to analyze their characters. Mm. At seven, when he was a spy during World War II, he was seeing this Czech woman. He was dating her and she worked with him at the like American delegation. Um, and British agents told him that, oh, they think she's passing information to Austrian agents. And he was like, okay, I guess she has to be liquidated. And do you know what? Instead of like, I guess, I don't know, giving them her address or whatever, he takes her out to dinner. He has dinner with her and then he hands her over to the assassins that are going to kill her. Mm. And he's just like, this is what, this is what, this is, what, this is when he's young. Mm-hmm. So imagine what he's capable of when he's jaded and older. <laughs> so while Kermit was in Iran, Planning, you know, working with British agents, doing the killing Iranians. Mm. Alan was in Italy. Mm. Why was he in Italy? Because the Shah 
had run off with his wife because mm. of all the troubles and the chaos going on in Iran. And that was who Alan wanted to put back into power. He wanted to put the Shah back in power in Iran. And the guy was running away. They're like, he's, he's a little bit of a punk. And that's, that's what they're telling each other, right? Mm-hmm. So Alan shows up to the same hotel as the Shah and his wife. And he was like, oh my gosh, what what a coincidence. What a coincidence. Like, I'm here with my wife. Like, oh my God. They said they checked in at the same time. The Shah thinks it's a coincidence. And I just don't know why you would ever, ever in your life think it's a coincidence that you've run into a CIA man or an, like, an American official in another country. This is somebody that is known to him. Yeah. Really, you think it's a coincidence? At that point in time, apparently the Shah and his wife were having issues because she could not conceive a child, which is, so she was really stressed. She had been raised incredibly wealthy as well. And so the Shah's like, we're on the run now. We have no more money. And she's like, girl, I gotta have my bags. I have, I gotta have my things. Apparently when they landed, the Shah tried to convince the pilot to stay with them. Like he was like, oh, like I, I have no more stuff. <laughs> that is how sad things were looking for him like the shower's thinking like my life is over mm. the country is gone and in comes alan dulles like oh no baby you about to be president <laughs> you're about to be a dictator shortly don't worry mm. i got you got you, got you. <laughs> Also, they were keeping tabs on, obviously, the Shah and spying on him. And the person who was helping him do this was the Italian ambassador to, like, the American, you know, the American guy in Italy. So that's the American ambassador to Italy, yeah. not the Italian ambassador. Okay. American ambassador to Italy, mm-hmm. who, whose wife was sleeping with Alan <laughs> the same time. Okay. <laughs> so much happening at once. That's very interesting. Yeah. So, Alan is over in Italy having sex with everyone and getting those moving parts together. And Kermit is in Iran getting the other moving parts together. So, this is how the coup happens, right? Even though there was a lot of chaos with all these mercenaries they paid and all these military men and there was a lot of, like, troubles going around, Mossadegh still controlled the streets of Tehran. He still had his people on the streets. And in the end, it's his faith in the American government that was his undoing. Because the Americans knew that the only way they could take over Tehran and like the actual seat of power was if Mossadegh called his guys off the streets. So then the American ambassador goes to Mossadegh and on August 18th, his name is Loy Henderson. And after conferring with Kermit, not his president, after conferring with Kermit, he goes to meet Mossadegh. And in the hour-long meeting, he was saying that there are lots of anti-Western mob attacks that are happening. He even threatened that the U.S. embassy would would close. He said that if Mossadegh wanted to restore order, and if he did not restore order and get his guys off the road, the U.S. would have to evacuate all Americans and withdraw recognition of his government. And Mossadegh believed him and he lost his nerve, according to Henderson. And he immediately ordered his police chief to clear the streets. This is what Henderson calls Mossadegh's fatal mistake. With Mossadegh's supporters off the streets, with the most the police curtailing all his supporters off the streets, the CIA hired thugs 
were free to take their place. Backed by rebellious elements in the military, which already also had CIA and MI6 money. Mm -hmm. So on the morning of August 19th, Juan Mossadegh was huddled in his home with his advisors. Tanks driven by Prussia military officials and street gangs whose pockets were literally stuffed with CIA cash whose hands were literally holding CIA-provided weapons, converged on the Prime Minister's residence. Shells tore into his residence. He ordered his own men to cease fire, and he managed to escape. But soon after, he was arrested, imprisoned, thereby ending Iran's brief interlude of democracy. (sighs) That is how, how Alan, that is how you go here. While Kermit was on ground uh, and making sure that the overthrow went according to plan, Alan was in Italy with the Shah, making sure that selected leader would go back to Iran. And this this begins the series of military leaders and coups and all of that that follow. By the way, similar to Devlin. Kim, Kim Roosevelt cashed in on this coup. What did he do? He left the CIA in 1958 and joined the management of Gulf Oil, where he took charge wow. of their relationships and their relations with foreign governments, including the new Iran regime. Wow, wow, wow. He then became an international consultant, representing the Shah and serving as a middleman for weapons manufacturers doing business with Iran. Mm, The Shah remained deeply loyal to his CIA friend. He once toasted Roosevelt at a palace ceremony as one of the powerful forces, along with the almighty Allah, to whom he owed his throne. That's the top top three. Himself, Roosevelt, God. That's quite a risk. Holy Trinity. Yeah. yeah, it's <laughs> you guys know the craziest thing is that like this coup had what was called an intoxicating effect on Eisenhower's administration. They felt like it was a day that would never end. They felt so powerful. <laughs> I imagine truly can truly. They would bring Roosevelt to the White House to come and give them the gist of the goth. They, it's a game. This is a game to them. It's not just a game, it's money, it's economic. It's power. It's economic value for their country. I mean, I guess. But yeah, that is that is this week's episode of the Dirty Lie Podcast. America's ability to rebrand as a leader of the free world is so crazy to me. It's MTV and Hollywood. It's actually very simple. Also, it was in a time where there wasn't internet, so people couldn't didn't have ready information as to how crazy America was. Now a lot of people, lot, a lot more people are a lot more privy to like yeah. the underbelly of everything. And there's a general cynicism when it comes to America's history, so people, so, yeah. But then you know, just calling yourself a leader of the free world while ordering the death of Patrice Lumumba because he wanted his people to be free—it's crazy. It's just crazy. Branding. Anyways, that is our episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I promised like a lot of connections in the beginning and I did not get into every single one. This is because 
we're, we're tired it's sunday night <laughs> but you can read because uh, i i promised i would do this and i haven't done this and you guys it's because i work two full-time jobs and i do this and i'm I'm often tired, but uh, instead of me promising to give you resources, I will tell you now <laughs> while we're recording. And I think I'll start doing that. If I read any particular books that I think will give you more color on a topic, I'll just tell you at the end of the episode. Mm. It saves me a lot of work. So for this week's episode, if you want to know more about Alan Dulles, his brother, John Foster Dulles, and the million other coups they participated in, you can read a book called The Brothers. The Brothers by Stephen Kinzer. And you can read a book called The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA and the Rise of America's Secret Government. So those are two books you can read. You can also listen to a podcast called Behind the Bastards. They have episode on Alan Dulles. I believe it is called... Honestly, I can't remember what it's called, but the podcast is called Behind the Bastards and they do have, they do have a three, three episodes on Alan does. But yeah, and just thank you. Thank you for rocking with us as always. See you next week. And, uh, I hope you all have your PVCs and I hope us a safe voting election period. Have a lovely one. See you guys. Bye.